The world is mysterious enough. We don't have to make stuff up to keep it interesting. Like we don't have to romanticize the past. The human achievements, the strangeness of human accomplishments, the things that we know and don't know are compelling. And I find the chrysalis turning into the butterfly way more interesting than saying it's magic. It's magical because it's beautiful and it's wondrous and it takes our breath away, but it also is a process we can explain and describe and it has a history and there are reasons for it. That's the way I like to approach the study of yoga. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. Professor Douglas Brooks came to Buddhism and its traditions first as a teenager, and then he followed a powerful calling to travel to India, living there, falling in love with its languages, history, and the South Indian Tamil culture. You'll hear more about his interesting and wonderful journey in our conversation. His dual fascination with Buddhism and Hinduism has informed his scholarship and teaching ever since. He draws on his love of languages to travel into the past and bring back its gifts. In this two-part episode with Douglas, he will help you discover or rediscover your practice of mindfulness. Like the word yoga, when I ask people what the word mindfulness means to them, what their experience of it means to them, I get lots of different answers that ultimately help inform my understanding. So you may be wondering, as Douglas and I dig into some ancient texts, how will this wisdom benefit me today? Well, as most of us know, life can be a storm and this wisdom may help you weather it. I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with Professor Douglas Brooks. Great to see you, Douglas. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Derek. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I call everyone else by their official title. So I, Professor Brooks, it's hard for me because I, you and I speak so frequently and I never call you that. So if I default to Derek, that's what my students call me and you're my friend. Um, as for my title or credentials, um, let them stand by themselves. Please just call me Douglas. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, just want our listeners to know that if I habitually go back to Douglas, it's, uh, it's not out of dis disrespect. Well, please do. So this is a topic, just like you and I discussed what is yoga many episodes back, which ended up being two parts. I could see this conversation ending up as two parts as well. And in the same way with that topic, I had certain agendas that I wanted to list at the top, and I'll probably do the same here. And I, I see this the arc of our conversation unfolding in two parts. The first part being a brief history of mindfulness and the general project of liberation. And then in part two, mindfulness today, how do we typically experience this word mindfulness in contemporary times? Your personal experience with it i.e. its application, its efficacy in this chaotic and tropic world that we live in. And my two agendas or hopes for this conversation is to provide the listener with some historical, philosophical practice, 
religious or liberation context for this word mindfulness. And I hope after listening to our conversation, the next time someone reads a book on mindfulness or hears someone speak about it, is deciding on which retreat or course uh, to attend and purchase, et cetera, that they might be more curious about that person's identification with or affiliation with specific sources or traditions, ultimately becoming a more discerning consumer of mindfulness content and products. And there's only so much we can cover in, in our short time together, but at least it might plant the seed uh, in, in terms of generating a curiosity for, for all of that above. And then my last hope is to spend some time, and this may occur in a, a word that you use often, a commingled way. You may share that as we go along. It may not just be uh, cleanly divided between uh, the prior and uh, the the latter being like spending some time unpacking what mindfulness means for you. How does it factor in your life, your interior and exterior experience, expression, perceived efficacy? And similarly, how we discussed in the what is yoga conversation when it comes to words like mindfulness and yoga it's it's relatively easy to provide a short definition or description but as one quickly realizes when diving into some of these texts the brevity vastly omits the philosophical the metaphysical historical cultural complexity of these words you know, their meaning, their intentions, and and ultimately the practical implications. And as I was prepping for our conversation, one of the books uh, I um, spent a bit of time with was Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And in it, he says, like, what is mindfulness? And he says, it's a bit like asking, what is art? Or what is love? So this will likely be a long conversation, so I hope you stick with us, and I hope we make it worth your time. To kick it off, for a topic like this, I think it's important to spend a bit of time on your background to both help create a personal connection uh, with you and to convey your subject matter expertise as a scholar and practitioner. I don't, as you know, I don't take these topics lightly in the same way that if I needed surgery, I uh, certainly would want to consider my surgeon's education experience uh, in point of view. Uh, so let, let's start with that. Can you kick us off with a bit of your background and uh, why this topic is uh, of interest to you? Well, thanks, Derek, and thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I have much to say just in, in, in comment on your agenda, which I think is maybe, maybe let me start there and that will let me talk a little bit more about myself because one can't speak of oneself without vanity for long. So uh, I'll, I'll try to keep that part short. I think that the subject of mindfulness, along with the introduction and elaboration, one might say the, the establishment of modern postural yoga, what we would might just call asana yoga, but mindfulness and asana, if we can, if we can use that term, are probably the two most significant innovations in the history of yoga in the last 75 years. And, and both of those uh, 
practices and and evolving uh, socio-cultural phenomena. I think modern postural yoga is well-established and kind of firmly ensconced now uh, in the West and particularly in America, and such that it has also kind of reinvented itself in India. I mean, I haven't been to India now in two years, but last I was there, there were yoga studios in major cities. Now, that wasn't the case when I first went to India, and it has, and it wasn't the case until, in fact, very recently, which isn't to say that there weren't practitioners of postural yoga doing their work, since virtually all of the most influential practitioners of modern postural yoga in America at least originated their practice a generation ago or so with important characters from the from the, the Indian tradition who were working in India who were of South Asian origins. That phenomena has moved on not only generationally, there are wholly qualified and 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 virtuosic practitioners and teachers of postural yoga who are no longer of South Asian origin. But in fact, what we call yoga in America, which I think really what we mean when we say yoga, is we mean postural yoga. Like, I'm going to the yoga studio. I'm, I'm not of the ilk that thinks that there's a real meaning of yoga. There's the way the words are used. And there's the meaning that applies in every particular situation or context. So in India, I think still the word yoga has a much broader and in a certain sense more ambivalent and it functions more the way Goldstein said the word love or art functions, right? Those are words whose whose purpose covers, one might say, a broad swath of possibilities. Like I love the dog, I love ice cream, I love my mom, I love my partner, right? And so the reason a word like that is is both powerful but difficult to define isn't because it's particularly difficult to understand its meaning. It's because it's it's because it means different kinds of things when applied in different circumstances or settings. Mm -hmm. That truth about yoga is still true in India. That is, if we used the word yoga in India, I think it would be like using the word love in ordinary American English. That is, it could be, it could apply severally, variously, in interestingly, very different ways, because I don't think we love ice cream the way we love mom. So that notwithstanding, um, I think that when we use that word yoga now, in America particularly, we mean a yoga class. And I don't think there's terribly much ambivalence about that. That's now, right. if, we, if we pressed and asked and said, well, what do you think yoga is and where does it come from? And is there anything more to yoga than that? I would suspect that a significant number of folk would have no idea. That is because that's not was that wasn't part of their introduction. That wasn't part of their history. That's not why they came to a yoga class. And their familiarities with the use of the word or the history of the traditions that apply that word or use that word are there's no reason why people would would know that. If, unless they had sort of taken a course with someone like me in college. Correct. So 
I came to all of this more than 40 years ago as a teenager, very much a seeker, a seeker coming, you know, sort of emerging out of the late 70s. And my first introduction to India was in 1977. And I was supposed to stay just like a semester. I was originally on a college program and I stayed quite a bit longer. And then to make that a simpler story, it it consumed my life and my concerns and my and and everything that I cared about. Because during that first initial stay in India, I met a remarkably gifted, erudite, and lovely human being who uh, who was my teacher and is my teacher. Um, his name was Gopala Ayer Sundramurti. He was a South Indian man, and he was professor of Sanskrit at Madurai University. Now, Madurai is a, the major cultural center. It's the epicenter of ancient Tamil culture, and the Tamils are the folk of deep South India. That's where we find those beautiful bronzes and of the so-called Chola era. It's where we find that remarkable culture of... Hindu worlds and temple worlds. And Dr. Sundramurthy, who I call Appa, because Appa was, is the Tamil word for, for dad or father. Um, within about six months of our meeting, he invited me, quite literally, he invited me to live in his home. And he was a householder. He was uh, born of the Brahmin or priestly caste. And yet he was this embracing revolutionary character. Let me say one small thing about that invitation, quite literally, to, to move in with his family. His children were still young. He lived in an extended family with, with, his, with his beautiful ancient mother who had been 50 years plus a Brahmin widow and had, and had taken up the, the old traditions of, widow, of widowhood his sister and brother-in-law lived in the extended family on the same plot, and his brother-in-law was a professional priest, tonsured, um, wearing the traditional garb, and he worked as a priest. That was his job. So, And they had five children, uh, or six, but four of whom were still in the house. So there were a, when I first moved into Appa's house, there were eleven people living in four rooms, and, and I I slept on the roof or the or the or the front porch at night mm. just to just to make it easy for everyone. But to have been invited into such a situation of of folks whose traditions represent the great one might say orthodoxies of South Indian Tamil Brahmin culture is unusual to say the least. As I began to sort of describe that story in my own journey, both spiritually and then as I went on into graduate school, uh, it, it was met with incredulity, especially by Indian folk who would know how unusual it would be for families that deeply rooted in traditional culture and orthodoxy to have invited, as it were, a foreigner into their midst. And short of that is, is that I was invited not only into the home, but I was embraced and loved. And it took me many years to realize what a remarkable 
revolutionary social and political act Uppa had committed, that he had risked his own place in community, his own social and cultural status, that by bringing me, this outsider, into this very old world of tradition and custom, he had quite deliberately made a kind of social and political choice within the community. That Let me just finish this just for a moment, because it reflected further his, his most more expansive and inclusive and remarkable vision of what these traditions, and let's just call those traditions yoga, because that's what I'm going to do, what they meant to him. Because here in this ultra-conservative, virtually ancient kind of customary world in which he was reared, he was, he was not only willing to embrace my presence in his home as his student, as a member of his family. I mean, the, I, was, I was considered brother and sister to, to, the, to, his, to his children and nieces and nephews in the home, but also because he was um, a strident advocate of, of the education of girls. He was virulently opposed to the misogyny and sexism that pervaded the ordinary status of that culture. He was revolutionary in his embrace of different kinds of people. He was, he was, he was, he was outspoken in his embrace of, of, um, of homophobia and that kind of ordinary saturation in that culture, to say nothing of how people might refer to me. Um, there were so many instances where some ultra-traditionalist would, would, would visit our home and, and think that I didn't understand the language, that I couldn't speak Tamil. That, and they would sort of start to talk about me in front of me <laughs> and question him. Like, and, and in Tamil, you could use a, a form like, well, who is it? You know, what is that? With the sort of ordinary kinds of... Um, the impersonal. Yeah, and, 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 and derogatory right. comments. And he just wouldn't put up with that. He wouldn't put up with that in any case. Like, Uppa was... Uppa truly was a remarkable person this way. Because on the one hand, he was deeply rooted in tradition. He, he came to his position as professor of Sanskrit, both both through familial and clannish learning, which was the old way. I mean, the old way Brahmins learned the culture of Sanskrit is best compared, I think, like, like a comparison for us, would be the old rabbinic families, where it was deeply familial and clannish, and, and, and that kind of what we might say, what we might see uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people doing in, in, to commit to the study of Mishnah and Torah. Like, the way Brahmins learned was not in institutions or in temples or in schools as such. They learned in these small social circles that were largely familial and, and deeply insular and non-inclusive and non-inclusive. And when I met Dr. Sundramurthy, he thought that this learning and this tradition had value and it had importance in history and it had something to say about everyone's life, but that it needed 
a revolution, <laughs> a revolution of inclusion, a revolution of accessibility, a revolution of, of social change. And, and I didn't really kind of realize that I was just part of that, that vision and part of that, that social experiment <laughs> that he was willing to conduct with his own family and with me being there. Because there were many days when, when my presence in that house was deeply problematic for the extended family. Um, so anyway, I came as a student to India with personal curiosity. Can, with, I, can I pause you there? Yeah, sure. We'll come right back to that. For such an erudite and discerning and wonderful human, yes, for all the reasons that you uh, described, it makes sense that he would open his home in that way, but there must have been something about you. He wouldn't just have invited anyone, and this may require you to sort of toot <laughs> your own horn. Like, why do you think it, he? Why do you think that he saw? What What did he see in you that would have led to <laughs> that relationship? Well, my heart was yearning and maybe teetering on desperate. I needed, even though I was still a teenager, I was only 18, 19 years old, I, I, needed, I needed a place to find meaning. I needed a way to create a sense of, of direction and purpose spiritually, personally, deeply. Now, part of this is, let me just say that, um, we're all created in, in, by, the, by, our, by, by the circumstance and the context of our times as well. And, you know, I, I belong to that generation that really isn't the first generation of West goes East, right? I'm, I, let, me, let me put this really bluntly and it'll, make, it'll kind of make the point, you know, like I saw the Beatles you know, go to Rishikesh. Like I was just a little kid when that happened. I was a little 10, 12, whenever that happened. That was, that was little. And I saw the rise of ISKCON, you know, the, the Hare Krishna movement in the West. And I've got hilarious stories about conversations with, with, with folks that we just affectionately call the Hare Krishnas, you know, and, and I have a great deal of respect and, and consideration for those folks and for those traditions too, because now I understand their, their heritage. I understand their provenance. I understand what they were doing. I understand something about who their teacher was. So, but I, I came of age, that is, I came into college in, in luck, luckily, in a kind of awakened civil rights age. I belonged to a community that had integrated schools and had preached inclusion and accessibility from the very early age. And, but also in the malaise of Vietnam, and then in the post era of the Beatles, where, and I think John was right, like when, when he sang about the fool on the hill, he wasn't kidding. So I, and then I grew up in New Jersey, you know, in this suburban community that on the one hand was very inclusive and, and interestingly, its own civil rights experiment. I'd be happy to talk about that another hour because it was a fascinating upbringing. I mean, belonged to the community that was the first to integrate its public schools willfully, deliberately, explicitly to try to 
shape, reshape values and attitudes. And I have to say it worked like it really did. Um, the other side of this was I was yearning for my own kind of spiritual journey and not to go too far there, but even as a child, I, I had an interest in religion and my parents weren't religious and I asked to go to church. Like, what kind of a kid does that? But I did. <laughs> and then about 14 or 15, I had a kind of disaffection and awakening that, that the message and the traditions of the Christian church, and I've been kind of reared in what we might call high church Episcopalianism, right? So the joke is the Catholic junior varsity, you know, like smells and bells. I, later on, I, I make, I jest, but you know, later on I went to divinity school. So we, we had a joke about every kind of, about every sort of sectarian form when you could imagine, because that's what you do when you study religion, you have to keep a sense of humor and kind of talk about things. But so, but this is not a, a trivial point in my own journey, because I found the liturgy of the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, which is this elegant, sort of structured, ritualistic world, I found it deeply compelling, not for its content, but for the way ritual and myth and storytelling, the way a whole vision of the world could become a practice. Like if you went to, mm. if you went to communion at 8 a.m. before the family service, before like church started, and you were in this small sanctum with 10 people in the chapel, and you were the altar boy, and you kind of got up to move the Bible from one side to the other. And, and in that tradition, like you read from the book. And, you know, even Christopher Hitchens, many, many years later, commenting said something that, 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 that I think I was realizing, and that is, I didn't believe a word of it, but I, that's kind of how it came out. Like, that's what happened in my revelation disaffection, like the literalism and even the symbolism of those worlds just no longer really resonated for me. But as Hitchens once said, the elegance and the erudition and the beauty of the language and the power of the ritual remained compelling. And so when I became first interested in India, I was interested at once, and, and that just kind of stumbling through a social studies class in junior high school, like, how do you find out about anything, you know? Or, and then it was, and then again, I'm a creature of my age. So had a little taste of Hermann Hesse and his story of Siddhartha. Um, I had a little, you know, the kind of, intimations of the Beatles. You know, there's these great civilizations over there. I got hooked on Ravi Shankar's music, like who couldn't, because it's so fantastic and compelling. So I had this, this taste of there are other worlds. And, and I think my interest in, in India came through the, the contemplative tradition, through the ritual tradition, because that that church that I had sent myself to, my parents, my parents never attended church. I would go on Sunday morning by myself to the very early service. And I ended up the altar boy until I was 14 or 15. And I found that quietism, that contemplation, that interiorization, deeply personally compelling. 
And then I found the externalization, like the practice of ritual, you know, kind of getting up, sitting down, moving the book, you know, like raising, raising the chalice, like doing all the things that happened. I found that formality, like that external kind of formality, very compelling. And, and compelling because transformation was happening? Right, because the, in, the, the inner worlds allowed you to, to wander, to roam, to imagine, to create, to feel. And the outer worlds provided a vessel, a structure, a formulation. And when I entered, as I began to learn a little bit more about India, and I had this very sort of romantic and jilted view and naive view of, of Brahmin life and the priestly life in India. But one thing I wasn't wrong about was that these were folks who deeply prized that creation of context and that formulation that ritual helps you have. Like ritual is a way to tell a story. Ritual puts structure and boundaries and symbols into motion. Ritual lets us think about how we can organize our feelings because we have signs and symbols. We have behaviors, you know, stand up, sit down, sing this song. And Brahmin worlds, especially South Indian worlds, are when even before you enter a home, but what you see in temples, what you see in everyday Hindu life is a commitment to a gesture, to a behavior, to a ritual, even if it's like taking a flower and putting it at a simple roadside shrine. You know, you see that everywhere in South India all the time. Like long before, you know, months before Dr. Sundramurti invited me to live in his home, I saw that. And, and somehow there was this kind of compelling connection to my own, my own process. Because my process was, well, what's really, what is the human possibility? And what lies in my heart? And how do I connect and what does it mean? I, I had taken that old, that old injunction from St. Paul. There's something St. Paul says that's really interesting. He says, pray ceaselessly. That could almost be, if we reached really deeply, that could be a definition of mindfulness. Because it could be a way of saying, from what, what's emerging in your heart and mind? Like, what's in, your, what's in the storehouse of your consciousness? Where do you come from? How do you connect? What self and how do you connect to this complex experience of and in a world that's a whirlwind, that's that's a, that's storming all the time? And then, when my earliest kind of academic or first encounters with characters like the historical Buddha or the stories that created Buddhism and and the Hindus, I realized that. That some of the most kind of efficacious examples of seekers were were folk who had were people individuals like the legend of the Buddha. Think of it is is a deep personal resolution, like a commitment. You know how like you know how his legend goes that he spends five six years in ardor. You know in the practice that that we call tapas in yoga, like literally turning up the heat, which is what that verb means. Tapas means ardor. It's often translated asceticism, ascesis. And what it means is, you know, 
it answers that question like, well, where's your commitment? Where's your courage? Like, what are you, what are you willing to do to arrive at your goal or your, or your objective or the thing you want most? Like, what's in your heart and how do you get there? And so I saw that deep personal commitment and resolve, that discipline. And so I was ready for that. And then, but then I also saw that in the midst of modernity and the malaise and just the madness of a world. And when you get to India, it, you know, it's, 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 it's wonderfully crazy. You know, mm. it's functioning anarchy. It's, it's astonishingly rich. And in the middle of that, you would see people pause for a moment and place a flower or place some kunkum, you know, the red mark mm -hmm. or, or just some simple act. And I think the confluence of that, that internalization and that sense that ritual, you know, part of what happens to us is that rituals become meaningless or vacuous or repetitious or routinized and we get kind of stale, you know, but when, but, but think of like what's happened, um, in modern postural yoga, like a yoga class is a ritual because it puts you in a circumstance, it places you on your mat, it invites you to a beginning, to a story, to a continuity, and then to a conclusion, like you end in Shavasana or something like that. Like you, you, and, and then you put it away and you go on to do the next thing. And so that, that, that may sound odd to some of our listeners that like a yoga class is a ritual, but it has all those marvelous qualities of giving form or structure. You know, there's a, a great statement in, in, uh, in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, what good is a well spilling out on all sides? And part of what he means is we need a vessel and then we don't, we don't need too much, but we need just enough. But without a vessel, everything spills out on all sides. So I came to India knowing that I was spilling out on all sides, mm -hmm. that I had, I had lost my way at home and that I didn't have a, a, a sense of direction, a sense of purpose. But I was lucky enough in a certain way to be skeptical of other things that had come. Like I saw a little snake oil in the gurus. You know, I, I saw a little, I, was, I wasn't quite so easy or willing to kind of latch on to the first person trying to kind of sell me enlightenment. So anyway, I ended up in India and then you had Hesse's model hmm. to uh, show you the way on that. I did. I did. And, and, and Hesse was immensely helpful, you know, because, um, you know, how many folks have reread Hesse's Siddhartha now and as adults or much later in life, but it is a, a tacit, not even tacit. It's, it's a, it's, explicit. it's a direct kind of counterpoised, even critical view of the path of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Since, you know, in the, in, in the course of the story, the, the protagonist who in fact has the Buddha's name, he is Siddhartha, right? Siddhartha sees his best friend Govinda kind of co-opt, co-opted and brought into the Buddhist path. And then of course he meets him again near the end of the book and doesn't recognize poor Govinda, Yeah, poor Govinda sort of is still kind of not really where he thought he would be in the practices and in the company of the blessed one. And there's this conversation near the end of Hesse's Siddhartha between the, between the Buddha 
and Siddhartha, Siddhartha says, well, you know, all well and good for you, but maybe your path isn't for everybody. And, and, and maybe, you, and, and the, I think implicit in that conversation isn't, you know, like maybe you, maybe you didn't do my best friend a solid in bringing him along, you know, like, and, and that's, let me say this, that one of the more re remarkable features of, of Uppa was that he wasn't interested in a dogma and he wasn't interested in making me him, right? Like I once said to him, Uppa, could I have your experience? And he threw his hands up in his air and, and he laughed and he said, well, I'm Tamil. I grew up in a village without running water and electricity. I was born in 1936. <laughs> and, and you're just not going to have my experience. You're going to need to evolve your own interpretation, your own practices. I, I can give you structure. I can teach you. I can, we, can learn the, we can learn honestly and thoroughly, but you have to make this your own. And he said to me that, he said that to me when I was 19 years old. And, you know, I was with him over a 16-year period through my PhD. My, my goal in life, in a certain way, after meeting him, was to try to get him in his retirement to come and live with me and live and work with me. Aww. And, um, yeah. And, and in the very year I, I sort of, I made my bones in the very year I was tenured as a, as a professor in the university was the year that Uppa became gravely ill and, and passed in six months. And it broke my heart, you know, because, and, and, and it also, but it also reminded me that, as valuable and as interested as my academic training had been, you know, it was, it was Uppa who sent me back to the States and he said, you know, you can come back, but you can't look back and you can always live in as many worlds as you can, as you, as you want to. But he didn't want me to sort of go to India and just lose myself there. He wanted me to have everything I could have. And so it was, it was his suggestion that sent me to graduate school at Harvard. So that's that. And then that story just led to, to more conversation, more back and forth. I want a couple, I want a couple of good grants along the way so that I get to spend long periods of time in India with about two, three years at a time doing advanced work in Sanskrit and in Tamil, um, literature and language and history. And that's how, and I completed my PhD, I guess it was in 86. And um, I was 29 years old. So in you, he saw an authentic need to find meaning, an insatiable, honest curiosity, and also a deep reservoir of willingness to commit. And you'd, you'd mentioned that in a previous conversation that you and I have had that were you actually, was your PhD initially in Buddhism? Yeah. So, um, let me, can we back up just 20 seconds? Sure. I think, I think you need to have enough talent. I think it's a, a Gladwell, remember Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this. And I think his three points are worth noting here because they're very autobiographical to me. Um, Gladwell says, well, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You just have to be smart enough. Like, in other words, no matter what you're doing, his his example is even more telling. Like, would did Michael Jordan need to be six ten? Wasn't six nine tall enough? Well, I was tall enough. Does that make sense? Like, I never fancied myself the the best or the brightest in the room. But then Gladwell says, 
But as important as your talents might be, or your endowments, or your gifts, is your is your commitment. And that I understood. Like I could bite down on a pant leg like a terrier, you know, like I like a puppy. Like, and it was like that living with him because he was he was he was brilliant and he was careful and he and he was a serious scholar with a great heart. But he 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 would, didn't want to inculcate you. He wanted to educate you and he wanted to give you your autonomy. And then that last thing that Gladwell says, so you got to have some talent. Okay. You have to have enough. You don't need to be the best. Just have to be, I went to school with folks who were infinitely more gifted and, and, and better prepared than I was. Um, not sure I went to school with anybody who wanted it more than I did. (laughs) And then that last thing Gladwell says is you just got to get lucky. Like you got to be the right person at the right time in a circumstance. And I did. I mean, when I arrived in India, Appa had just come back from a four-year period where he had been professor at the University of Kuala Lumpur, and he had worked in Singapore. He had been living overseas. And he came back to Madurai. He came back to South India at his mother's behest because she was getting on in years and she wanted to move back to India. And had I come a year earlier, I would never have met him. And then under the circumstances that I did meet him, it was sort of possible for me to move in, like to be part of that family, to learn the old way, because that was the way you learned. Um, you learned custom and practice. And men, my meditation started at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning every day downstairs in the house. Like we, it was, it was a way of life. And that suited me really well. Um, that it translated into academics and a career studying the material that that was all just a ruse in a certain way. You know, like it's a, like academics is, is, is a fine profession. There's a noble sort of end in itself to kind of uncover truths with honesty and, and seriousness. The other side of it is I've always just been a seeker and, and, and I want to take it to heart. And the best part of this time of my own life, like these later years in my life, I'll be 65 in a month or two, um, is that I, I no longer need to conceal or in any way inhibit my personal interests in these spiritualities, in this, in the traditions of yoga. I, I no longer have to, I don't, it doesn't, I don't have anything to prove in the academy and, and I have no I I I have that privilege and that's I understand that to be very much a privilege but what I one of the things I learned you know as a young man living with Upa was that if you have whatever privilege you have you have to pay it forward whatever gifts you were given make them a gift make yourself a gift to others I mean that was his teaching that was how and that's why he took me in so I I had hoped to make a life like that I have noticed your more personal point of view coming out more since I met you well over 12 years ago. Well, it was something of a coming out also. I mean, when I came back in those early years, there wasn't, there wasn't, as it were, even a yoga community. I mean, it was 15, it was, 
it was 15 or 20 years before modern postural yogis, before there was any population that would create our conversation now. Like, who's listening to this but folks who practice yoga? For the first 20 years of my own personal studies, nobody asked. Like, and, and I wasn't really, I had learned early on, like, don't volunteer too much. Like, mm-hmm. just like, like mm-hmm. so just go be a college professor and live your life. Like, it was a very private, very personal thing for me. Then, you know, once you make your bones in the academy, there is a great deal of privilege and immunity, provided you behave yourself and comport yourself with professionalism. Like, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of opportunity to, to live, to keep your private life your own. And I did. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out how to talk about these things that were deeply personal to me because I didn't do it to become a college professor. Like I didn't do it to become this guy on the Glow podcast who, who talks to, you know, to curious, interesting folk who have an interest in, in yoga or who come to glow for an experience. Like that's astonishing to me. Um, so my own coming out is a, has been an interesting process for me, but now, now like, like, like as far as I'm concerned, the doors are open. You can ask me anything. And, and I'm every day grateful and incredulous, like just completely off. I just don't even believe that there are folks who would care about these subjects. Again, because it was all very personal and literally from until about 2001, which is really when I began teaching in worlds outside the academy. And by then, I had been tenured six years. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have another step in academics to take, but I was just off in my own little world. And, and then folks came and said, could you tell us a little bit about that world? Or could you tell us about India? Or could you tell us about yoga? Or what do you know about mindfulness? And I went, okay. And we can do that both personally and professionally because what, let me say one more thing, because I know I've gone on here, but Appa was a stickler for keeping things real, for keeping things true. So if we want to talk about the history of yoga, or the meaning or the practices of mindfulness, he would, re- he would warmly commend a conversation where the resources and the history and the, and the conversation of the facts, such as we know them, such as they're constructed in, in the sort of critical atmosphere of scholarship is taken seriously, right? So he didn't, he didn't really like that romantic so I'll give you, can I give you just one simple example? So yeah, please you go, if you go to a yoga conference and some well-meaning person stands up and says, well, yoga is 10,000 years old. Like I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be kind and I'm going to try to be restrained, but I'm going to tell you that that's not true <laughs> because <laughs> that's not, that's not where the evidence takes us. Like mm-hmm. that's not what we know. And, and, and so, and I, Upper once said something really beautiful. He said, the world is mysterious enough. <laughs> and what he meant was, can I put it bluntly? We don't have to make stuff up to keep it interesting. Like we don't have to romanticize the past, the human achievements, the strangeness of human accomplishments, the things that, 
the things that we know and don't know are compelling. And, and I find, you know, I find the chrysalis turning into the butterfly way more interesting than, than saying it's magic. Like it's magical because it's beautiful and it's wondrous and it takes our breath away, but it also is a process we can explain and describe and it has a history and there are reasons for it. And that's the, that's my, that's the way I like to approach the study of yoga personal and, and spiritual. And you know, you, you can't, we, we can't deny someone's personal experience. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's how their heart, it's, it's where their hearts are and how they come across, but we should stay close to the, we should stay close to the facts if we can, such as we know what they are and, and, and admitting the, the complexity and the challenge that that creates. And speaking to that, I do want to come back to what meditation was like for you at three, 4 AM, uh, with him. Uh, but you mentioned the potential lack of necessity to make things up in that would also potentially lead to things of the supernatural realm and other sorts of claims, uh, which may also take us to liberation extraction from or some sort of exemption from worldly life. But to get there, why, why was Buddhism your initial focus for the PhD? Hmm. Well, in fact, um, well, I think that (laughs) not to go on about this, but there were three simple reasons. The first was that the Buddha and the traditions of Buddhism were the first thing that I came to as a teenager. So, so for three or four years before I went to India, before I knew before I knew anything about the Hindus, um, the the vision of of this 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 young man, which is what he was, taking up the the difficult questions of life in a tradition that initially emphasizes personal seeking, self reliance, the use of your own wits. Like Buddhism's first appeal to me was, you don't need the you don't need the gods. I mean, the Buddha will help you. Because he's the same way someone else can kind of give you directions or, you know, show you down the path. But it was a path of reason and self-reliance. And that was my first introduction. My second introduction to that was that was that, that got furthered and complicated and I got more interested in language and in history and then in the Hindus. But when I came home from my first experience with Appa, some of my most important and, and, and significant teachers were Buddhist scholars. So that even though I was saturated in this South Indian Hindu Tamil culture in traditions closely related to, you know, the, the image of the dancing Nataraja, that's Appa's home tradition, right? And which is, which is worlds away from the Buddhists. When I returned from India after that long first stint, the people who helped me most and and some of the scholars I admired most were Buddhism scholars. And they, and Masatoshi Nagatomi who was a Japanese scholar at Harvard was probably one of the two or three greatest scholars of Buddhism in the world. His immediate student, um, professor Eckel, who is still at Boston university. Um, Moss also had Robert Thurman as one of his students. And in other words, those guys were remarkable scholars. But then there was a third reason, and that is I didn't have to talk about myself. Mm-hmm. I could be a scholar of Buddhism and keep Appa and Nataraja 
and my Tamil life kind of private over there. So I entered graduate school focused on Buddhism, studying Sanskrit, studying Buddhist languages like Pali and Tibetan. I had six semesters of Tibetan, you know, I had serious studies in Buddhist studies. And then one summer, I had kind of drifted off back to India, you know, and I came home and my PhD mentor, who was, who was Malcolm David Eccle, who I consider one of the five greatest scholars of Buddhism of any century, an astonishingly erudite and kind man, says to me, you know, every summer you go off, you, you live in a Tamil Brahmin home. I know that's where your heart is. I know that's what you really do. You speak Tamil fluently. Why don't you do that? Mm. Why are you with me in Buddhist studies? And I said, I'm in Buddhist studies because of you, but also because, and this is really true, I could conceal my private life. I could be an academic over here, and I could be a seeker over there. Mm. And at, at a certain point, that also became uncomfortable to me. So I went to Appa and I said, Appa, can we make our subject, like our lives, the things that we do, the practices of the goddess, the practices of Nataraja, the Tamil Brahmin traditions of auspicious wisdom, can we study that critically and historically together? Like, can I make, can I, and because it was a real, it was a real issue. How do you study yourself? You know, and I was, I was worried about being the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, I mean, like to, to put it euphemistically. Um, but I got, I got approval for that. Like Professor Echo gave up a, at that point, a senior PhD student to another subject. So I started my PhD program in Buddhist studies, aiming to write a dissertation on Tibetan, particularly Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, and ended up graduating with the Hindus and writing about Tamil culture in South India and focusing on the goddess and the traditions of the dancing Shiva. Mm. Wow, what a story. It's a, it's, a, it's a wild story. Most people don't completely change topics three-fourths of the way through their PhD program. But well, like you said, you wanted it badly enough. Yeah. Speaking of, you mentioned studying yourself. How does one study oneself? That brings us potentially to the Satipatthana Sutta. Mm. You know, before you switched, were there, before we go into that text, and maybe we now go right to that text, were there any other texts that, Buddhist texts uh, specifically, that spoke to you in terms of the seeking, the transformation, the curiosity and wonder that you were seeking to expand, explore? Mm. Yes. I mean, I love the story. I, I love, I love two things from from the buddhists that i that i i love the dhammapada i love the words of the dhammapada because the dhammapada is a collection of aphorisms it's a collection of of phrases of we would call them memes now like and where the most the most kind of penetrating and insightful the most compassionate and ethical injunctions the kind of the invitation to to see life encapsulated is what the Dhammapada is like. It's a, um, we could draw out some of, some of those, some of those entries, but 
to do good, to study, um, to commit to kindness to the world. This is the teaching of the Buddha. You know, like, like it says things in such a direct and concise way. And, and it's been translated tens of thousands of times. And I'm probably sure I just botched that particular, that particular meme off the top of my head. But I, I've lo I loved the impact that, because in a short phrasing, the Dhammapada is, is kind of an invitation to mindfulness. Here's a phrase that if you pick it up in the morning, think about it, read it carefully. You carry it with you all day. You know, like you make coffee, you, you take a nap. You, you, can con you can use it as a, as a focal point of contemplation, what later traditions called a dharana. You can let it stabilize you and inform you. You can think about it. You can dream about it. Um, the other kinds of Buddhist sources, I loved the Sutta Nipata. I'm not sure if how many here would be particularly familiar with this, but this is a, a it's part of the Nikaya. It's part of the Pali language tradition of the collection of the, what are now the, the Southern traditions of, of Theravada Buddhism. And the Sutta Nipata is renowned for being likely among the very old sources. And it's filled with some really wonderful parables and stories. And, and those are the two things, in addition to kind of, when we get to a text like the Satipatthana Sutta that you just mentioned, um, that's, that's a very kind of practically directive, methodological text. It's a text that kind of teaches us how to meditate. It's a text with kind of recipe, not to, not to be diminishing, because I don't mean this at all, but one of the, one of the sort of really, one of the great kind of empowering features of, of, of Buddhist meditation teaching is that it's rigorous and it's assiduous. And a lot of these texts read like, like instruction manuals, like, like do this, then do that with a kind of rigor and seriousness to it. And I love those sorts of texts because, you know, if, like if, you know, if, if you want to bake brownies, you need a recipe. Like you, somebody needs to sort of tell you how to do it and show you, give you an example and kind of lead you along. Like it's a cookbook. And a lot of Buddhist meditation texts are, are really good cookbooks. And gosh, I love to read cookbooks, don't you? I mean, <laughs> plus you can imagine what's what, like the deliciousness on the other end of it. But there are other kinds of Buddhist teachings. And that's kind of, I think, what your question was. I would say to complement the cookbooks, the methodologies and the strategies and the practices, which are pretty nicely mapped out, especially in early sources, um, you get these kind of aphoristic moments. You get these sort of insights. And invariably, they're really good advice. Like they read like Confucian Analect. They read like the best bits of, of the red letter words in St. Luke. They, they, re, they, they ring true to your heart. And then there's the storytelling tradition. And how can you not want to find out why you are lonely like a rhinoceros, which is a fantastic story told in the Sutta Nipata. It's actually a metaphor for the loneliness of a spiritual journey. Mm. And, and I, so I've obviously gravitated to, to the things that kind of personally get me going. Like, like for a kid who grew up loving ritual, a recipe for meditation made perfect sense to me. You know, um, for, and, and for someone who loves the elegance of language or who kind of wants to drop in on an idea and think about it all day, 
the Dhammapada is a great source. And I just love storytelling. Like, I just love to hear people's stories. I love parables. I, you know, I love myths. Myths at their best are self-conscious lies told in the service of deeper truths. Myths let us say things that we can't say. They let us poke into the subconscious and the unconscious and uncover possibilities. Myths let us say things we would dare not say. And that, that raises the stakes and it gives us empowerment and audacity, you know, to think about our lives. So that's the kind of thing I like. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.